and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm here for the first time in 2019 in the studio with my co-host, LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Okay, so before we get to our show today, where we have an interview with master essayist John McPhee about a his legend. new— Seriously, a legend. Yes. About his new collection, The Patch— I want to talk to you about the Golden Globes. Let's talk about the Golden Globes. I mean, so first of all, I feel like readers, we need a little bit of an update as I keep my score, my Glenn Close scorecard for the rest of award season. Glenn Close did, in fact, win Best Actress for The Wife. She Her did, and we eyes, texted. unfortunately, were snubbed for Best Supporting Actress, but nobody's perfect. It's so I'm true. one for one. You are one for one. We talked about it at the time because we were all so excited for you. Her speech actually made me cry. Oh. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful. She thanked her mom. Yeah. And she seemed genuinely surprised that she won, which I found interesting because that yeah. performance was incredible. I ignored the rest of the show, unfortunately. The rest of the show wasn't that great. Yeah, even though I purchased a Hulu subscription, particularly to watch it like a total crazy person. <laughs> and then all these movies won that I'd never seen and don't I think don't particularly care to see. Anyway, but I was very excited for you, Eric. But I also want to say that and I'm sure that we'll get hate mail from listeners about this, but I was very happy to see that what I feared would happen, which is that A Star is Born would be a juggernaut that would just trample much better performances and much better movies. It does seem like it was headed off at the pass, and it mm-hmm. only won for the thing that I think it only deserved to win for, which is that song, The Shallows, which that- was a great song. Well, Dea's rolling her eyes, everyone, so you can send her the hate mail. Send me I will hate give mail. I will give the song a plus, and it deserved that win, but I'm glad to see that very underwhelming performances within all the entrants in those categories by uh, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga did not snatch the gold from people that I think better deserved it. I don't have any opinion on this matter because I watched that movie and thought it was fine. But one thing I did want to say about the Golden Globes, which mm. I've already forgotten, is that Sandra O oh talking about Crazy Rich Asians and how it made all this money in the box office. Also, her parents waving to the audience so at that moment when she received her award was like one of my favorite moments of the night. They are the cutest. Okay, so should we do Oscars predictions too early? Too early. Let's do that in February or whenever the Oscars are. Okay, exactly. Once I've got my ballot all printed and ready to go. I'm ready. Okay, so now we'll get to the actual show that we have for you, which is not Glenn Close and Her Eyes and the Wife, but John McPhee and his new collection of essays, The Patch, which I really enjoyed reading, mostly because John McPhee has this uncanny ability to take an object or experience or scene that I would otherwise not care about, such as golf balls or lacrosse, and tell me about it in a way that leaves me wrapped with attention on the page. Yes, I agree. I mean, I should mention to listeners, John McPhee is an almost, I would say, legendary nonfiction writer. He's been writing now for almost 60 years. Yeah, it has something like, I think if when I checked it before, it was like 33 books that he's published. A truly exceptional writer in Mm -hmm. the nonfiction world, a longtime writer for The New Yorker. And so this book, The Patch, is his most recent book. And I totally agree, Eric. When I started reading it, the first essay is about fishing, And I cannot tell you how little I care about fishing. It's very, very little. And yet somehow, even by the second paragraph, I was 
very interested in the kind of fish that he was fishing and how this related to his own life and just as a as a sort of temptation to listeners a, a hook yeah one might say yeah um <laughs> that it really takes a turn to something very moving and very private and um it's a truly lovely essay and it's a beautiful book He's really masterful, and I loved our conversation with him, and I'm totally envious of his ability to write. Same. Let's get to the conversation. Let's do it. Today, we're thrilled to have with us on the phone the incredible John McPhee, who's here to talk about his new collection, The Patch. John is a renowned essayist and nonfiction writer who, in addition to loads of books, a number of them Pulitzer Prize finalists, has also been a longtime contributor to The New Yorker and other major magazines. His latest collection of essays, The Patch, is split into two parts, the first of which consists of meditations on sports, which themselves become windows into other lives and experiences. The second part is what McPhee calls, quote, an album quilt, a collection of various unpublished fragments written across his long career and published for the first time in this collection. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. It's fun to be here talking with you. Can we talk, just to open it up a little bit, the new collection has been described as a covert memoir. So I'm wondering kind of what that term means to you, and also whether or not your nonfiction writing is ever not in some ways also memoir. Well, it used to be that I appeared in my work as little as possible. And my criterion was if the writer needs to be there, he's there. But if he doesn't need to be there, get lost. That was my approach to the relationship of a nonfiction writer to his material. In more recent years, I spent a number of years writing about the writing process. And this is a factor of, you know aging, having been around for a while. And if I'm going to summarize things in essays about the writing process in terms of my own writing and my own teaching about writing, well, of course, I'm present a lot more. And I think that's what a person at Farrah Strauss meant when they said covert is my editor, Alex Starr, when he coins this thing, covert memoir. But it's just because there's a little more of me in it than there was in earlier books. Let's talk about, especially because you have been writing about it a lot in the last couple of years, can you talk about your writing process? Because one of the things, and we'll get into some of the specific pieces in just a minute, but in general, one of the things that I appreciate a lot about your writing is that you have this beautiful way and very enviable way of moving from a kind of topic that I or other readers might not care that much about, such as golf balls, right? But you find a way of talking about golf balls and about your experience with golf balls in ways that illuminate a much larger world. And I'm just wondering from kind of a process perspective, how do you find the bridge between a series of experiences that you have or have collected and then connecting them to some kind of larger vision or social world? Well, it's a matter of looking for a story to tell within such material. If I don't find that, I probably wouldn't do it. Most of the things that I've written about are things that I had an earlier and much earlier interest in. And then something clicks over and I say, well, that would make a piece I could do. And, And I collect material for it and then get into the writing process. I'm not consciously trying to do 
anything on a level other than profiling people and the worlds that they occupy and what they do just because I'm interested in it and often have been interested in it for a long time. And how do you keep those pieces together? Are you a journaler? No, I've never kept a journal. I've taken extensive notes and everything else, Mm. but that's always on the job. I have not been a journal keeper. Something that interested me about the very first piece in this book, The Patch, is that you begin by talking about fishing and then you end on the death of your father. I was wondering for a writer who maybe has more recently started including his own experience in his work, that's a deep end to jump into, the death of a parent. How did you approach that particular subject? Well, see, it's because it just happened. I mean, I've Uh been going up to this place that my friend George and I call the Patch for 40 consecutive years, always right around the 1st of October and out in our canoes, you know, flailing away at the lake. And it happened that this one year, which was not recently, that it happened just the way it does in the story. We came home from that trip and the phone was ringing as we arrived here and I learned about my father's stroke, which turned out to be fatal. And when I I've actually forgotten what it was that triggered me to write about the chain pickerel. But whatever did, the association between that stark event with the telephone and going off to Baltimore and everything, right after, seconds after returning home to Princeton from the fishing in New Hampshire, just stayed there and, I mean, made that odd structure itself right then and there. And it related, as it says in the piece, to the fact that I'm a fisherman because my father was. It's as simple as that. I'm fishing with him when I was six years old or whatever, seven years old, eight years old. And now, now here's the time when he, he goes. And so this, all of that kind of presented itself in one large little package. But it's unusual. It wouldn't be typical of other pieces. So the first part, which we're talking about now, is largely anchored by kind of reflections on sports or what's called in the book the quote-unquote sporting life. Can you talk about your relationship to sports? Because it also strikes me that a number of these sports are more, you would say, like slow-paced or meditative, right? So like fly fishing, golf, but then you have others that are like lacrosse, for example, that are based on fast-splitting action. So I was trying to figure out some kind of theme or relationship to a particular type of sport that you might have. And so I'd just love to hear what it is that you think about sports in your life, in American life, or kind of Mm -hmm. how humans interact with them. Well, sure. The thing is that ideas streamed by a nonfiction writer by the zillions. There's just Mm. there's lots of, why do you stick on one thing? Why does it last for three months, six months, three years? It has not always, but most of the time, been something that caught into a subject I was interested in when I was 18 or 16 or whatever. So sport is definitely that. I was born into the family of a medical doctor whose field was sports medicine, and the Mm. Princeton football and basketball teams were the sports he looked after primarily. And so... I grew up in this context on the sidelines at football games here in Princeton and knowing people, you know, students who were 22 years old and I'm eight and I still know them or did when they were alive and so on. And then when I, my own thing, I played basketball in high school. I played tennis in high school, tennis team, and I had a PG year in which I learned to play and had 
maybe the best sports experience I ever had playing lacrosse at Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So look at those pieces in it, a piece about lacrosse, a piece about basketball. My first book was about basketball. I haven't written anything about baseball, and I didn't play baseball. Uh, so it, <laughs> it, it kind of it's nothing against baseball. It's just how it happens. I spent my youth also from age six to, because my father was a doctor up there, in a canoe-tripping, backpacking summer camp that was really very good at that sort of stuff. And I just grew up in canoes from the time I was six years old. So <laughs> look at the cover of the patch. My friend George is sitting there in a canoe, and I'm not far away. <laughs> is that and a picture that you took? That's a picture that my wife, Yolanda, took, the picture on the cover, and the person in the little canoe you can see is George Hackle, who was once captain of Princeton's ice hockey team mm. and who lives somewhere near that part of New Hampshire. And if you look in the lower right, there is a canoe protruding, but the paddler has been cropped out of the picture. That's me. (laughs) Wow, your wife, she took a beautiful photograph. I think so, too. I think that is a lovely piece of photography. And so does Laura. And Laura, my oldest daughter, is, I guess you'd say, art photographer. She has work hanging in museums all over the country and teaches at the Massachusetts College of Art. Well, she approves of that picture. (laughs) (laughs) So to kind of follow up a little bit on this, I oftentimes, you know, think, and obviously I'm not the only one that does, but think about the dichotomy between, say, like writing as a kind of sedentary intellectual activity and sports as a kind of active and physical activity. How do you see the relationship? In some ways, both of them also have their own poetics, right? The poetic emotion and the art of sports in the same way, the art of writing and thought. How do you see those two things related? And are they related for you? Or do you enjoy them kind of separately on their own terms? Well, they're related in that I like to write about them and to try to bring Mm. forth what there is about, like the sport of lacrosse, which is not that well known. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. It's a combination of, it's one of the, I don't know what the term would be for the sports, but basketball, ice hockey, water polo, lacrosse is the same game and the to draw out the physical the athletic attraction i mean magic of it is what you would try to do if you were writing about it so they come together in that way but only that way an athlete in action and a writer in action are two very different things (laughs) one is exciting to watch the other one not yeah (laughs) you're not kidding but i can't sit still (laughs) when i'm trying to write i have a hard time making myself stay there. And of course, the only way you get anything written is to make yourself stay there even when you're not writing, right, which is right. most of the time. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is the second part of this book is called An Album Quilt. Would you mind explaining that a little bit to listeners? No, sure. And at the beginning, in the introduction this afternoon, we said that these were unpublished things. Many of them, not all of them, have been published. The idea is that Nothing there has ever been in book form. There are fragments from magazines. It says so in the beginning of it. Where the album quilt begins, the album quilt is explained in a page and everything. But what I wanted to do, and I mean, I got this idea back in the 90s somewhere, something like that, was to look back through pieces of mine that had been in 
magazines and magazines before the magazine and in family things, things written not for publication at all, and look through all that stuff and see what I would like to pull fragments of it out and put them together in some kind of montage. Basically and importantly, my goal was not to preserve anything. I wasn't trying to put something in amber. I was looking for things that would be entertaining to readers whenever the thing like was published. And as it happened, 2018 in the fall was when it was published. And I was hoping to find a montage of fragments. And what I found of pieces, that things I had that I'd written, which were never in book form, amounted to about 250,000 words when I got it all out and so forth. And then I went at it. I spent a whole summer just reading it and trying to select fragments. When I was all done with that first thing, I had gotten rid of about 210,000 words, thrown them out. Wow. And I had left these little things, some of which are two or three pages long, some, some of which are half a page long and everything. And then I put them together and called it an album quilt because an album quilt, things developed in Baltimore, were quilts in which the blocks don't repeat themselves. Each block is unique. And so I thought that was a good title for this kind of idea I have. And so that's what the album quilt is. It's about 45,000 words or something like that of these fragments. And then came the thing, how are you going to organize it? You could put a date on each and every one. This is 1961, this is 1962, but that is tedious. And you could do it by the alphabet. You could have an index that said, here's Cary Grant, there's Richard Burton or whatever. And I decided that I would prefer it to be essentially random, that you just encounter things as you go along. Now, I put, there were 56 parts and I very much studied the whole thing in order to put together something that was random, you see. So there's a bit, what I mean is I didn't want to make a list and numbers and dates and stuff like that. Right. So that's what the album quilt is. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with John McPhee, author of The Patch, and we'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Julieta Singh in the studio with us today. Julieta is the author of many books, but her latest is No Archive Will Restore You. Julieta, you are here to recommend a book. I what am. book are you going to recommend? I want to recommend Banu Kapil's Humanimal, A Project for Future Children. Wow. Okay. Tell me what that is about. First of all, the best title. Yes. Great title. Um, but it's amazing. She's an experimental writer, London born of South Asian descent, but she lives in the U.S. And she is the author of many, many books. But Humanimal is a book that I have written on that I really love. That's a hybrid text that's a sort of mashup of poetic prose. And it starts with Banu's journey to Bengal to study a 1920s journal of a missionary named Reverend Singh, who 
caught and captured two quote-unquote wolf girls in 1920 Bengal. And they were two sisters, Amala and Kamala. And he brought them back to the mission to civilize them. And so it's this really beautiful, haunting evocation of a search for a very violent history of trying to convert humans that are uncivilized, quote-unquote, into civilized beings through a lot of torture and discipline, but also a really interesting meditation on colonization and diaspora and the movement of bodies. And one of the things I really love about it is how Banu herself becomes implicated in this disciplining of historical wolf girls through her own meditations of her body and how her body is involved in this strange historical movement of bodies across time and space. Oh, it sounds great. How did you discover this book? I think somebody sent it to me in the mail because I was interested in human-animal relations and was writing Mm -hmm. a lot about the human as an animal, as a particular kind of animal. And a friend saw the title and sent it to me in the mail, and then I became a wild Banu Kapil fan, and I read everything she writes now. Okay, tell us the title of the book again and the author. Banu Kapil, Humanimal, a Project for Future Children. Thank you so much. That was Julieta Singh, author of No Archive Will Restore You. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with John McPhee, author of The Patch. because it's as I was reading it um, and I I appreciate that you didn't put in the dates because it it creates a much more seamless reading experience and we should stress to readers or listeners the subjects really do jump from from subject (laughs) to subject right it's like Sophia Loren and then a, a Moscow circus and then a note on writing but it struck me that you'd created a literary collage of sorts or a quilt, as as you put it. I was wondering if if there's something in that creation of a new form that you're interested in taking further, because it is quite an interesting experiment in many ways. Well, I, I'm I'm just really pleased that it seems to some extent to have worked out because I didn't know what I was doing and and. Uh, except I had this big criterion that I didn't want to, I wasn't just trying lovingly to preserve something because I wrote it. And so, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I really exhausted everything I could find, so I don't know how I would put together another, uh, <laughs> another, 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 quote, another quote like that. One of the things about the uh, experience of it is that it's analogous to, in a way, an exercise when when I was a student in English literature in England, uh, your supervisors they were called would hand you a piece of paper that had on it a swatch mm-hmm. of prose or poetry that was utterly unidentified, just this thing, and you were supposed to read it and say in what decade of what century it was published. Oh. Mm. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's easier than you think. And if you read the album quilt there, 
without having all the apparatus of dates and numbers and all on it and just just flow along with it you get a distinct sense of the frames of reference of time that tell you you're in the 1960s or you're in the 1980s and so on. It's a, sometimes a little clue that's simple. I mean, if it alludes to President Ford and says he is the president, to to the you know the fun of reading something like that. So on on those lines, actually, I want to talk about that Cary Grant piece, which I found hysterical. Actually, Day I know also really enjoyed it. Um, I love the end. And and you definitely can tell that it's written in the present. You know, when Cary Grant is still a, a big movie star. Um, and I was wondering what your relationship is to those pieces in the past. Because, of course, as I'm reading the Cary Grant piece in the present, I am picking up with the knowledge that Grant was gay and had all of these um, relationships with men. I'm reading it with the knowledge that it's like, oh, sure, well, his fastidiousness and his kind of the multiple wives, the fact that the wives were all blonde-haired and blue-eyed, that he doesn't seem to care that his wife shows up at a um, at an event with, like, another another man... And then his kind of reclusiveness, like to me, those are all informed by knowledge that I have in the present about the past. So I'm wondering, did you return to some of these pieces, which were from a much earlier period, in any way with a kind of like, oh, this is what I thought it was in the moment, but this is now what I understand it to be now? I'm sure I did. And I, but, but I'm a little, uh, you know, other than the example you give, the, uh, I mean, Cary Grant and so forth, the, I, I, I can't, unfortunately, just uh, pop up with, with specific examples. But when you do look back like that, you see things in a different light. But, that, that, but, I, but I can't be specific because it, other, other things don't, don't pop don't to mind. Don't come to mind. Well, in, in that same sense, I, I do wonder, what, were, did you ever have any feeling that it, as you look at, because I think most writers have this experience when they look at prior work, there's a kind of like, balance between pride at like, oh, I really got it right that time. That was a really great sentence, turn of phrase, that sort of thing. And then the kind of uh, masochistic desire to constantly edit oneself. Or maybe I, I'm probably projecting. You may not have the same kind of desire. But can you talk a, a well, little know, bit I about don't, that? And I, I, I don't. And I was lucky on that ground in a way because, I mean, from the time I was in high school, I, I, I wanted to write for the New Yorker, but that doesn't mean I could get to do that. I, I sent them uh, enough pieces to get to collect the rejection slips, <laughs> you know, to wallpaper your bathroom. And, and uh, the thing is that I, I went to work for Time magazine, and I wrote there for, for seven years. And, uh, and before that, I wrote television plays, oddly enough. And uh, but but I always kept sending things to the New Yorker. Well, at any rate, writers grow very slowly. Mm-hmm. An example like John Updike is is not anything any other writer should model himself on. This is a phenomenon. He is publishing a novel a year after he gets out of Harvard, and and uh, so on. And but writers take a long time. Well, during all that period in the twenties. I think that by the time I got to the New Yorker at age 31 or 32 or whatever, that I was a a certain distance along as a writer. Mm. And what this has produced is that when I look back through all those early New Yorker profiles and stuff like that, they they don't make me wince and want to change anything. 
but I think it's because I was a, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't uh, 21 years old when I started, and but for or that or for whatever reason I I don't have a I don't have a problem about wishing I could change something. When you look back, do you and this might this might be a strange question to answer, but do you have a sense of how you've changed nonfiction? Because I think everybody else does. <laughs> but it, do that you... just surprises me, and the, the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> and and and, and it, it has always surprised me, that sort of thing. When I did react to certain things that were, went on in my time, such as the so-called new journalism, mm-hmm. this proclamatory term. I didn't see anything new about it, and... I mean, Daniel Defoe was writing nonfiction, and uh, he didn't know Tom. He didn't know new journalism, and and so forth. And that that sort of bothered me. And another thing that bothered me was the the idea of a the position of a writer with regard to his work and to the reader. To the 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 writer. I mentioned this earlier in the thing, but there are certain situations where the writer has to be present, and that's perfectly okay. But a writer who is standing between the reader and his material and prancing around just for the sake of prancing around is, in my view, not okay. And uh, I, I, I uh, just those were certain criteria that I had which shaped whatever I was like as a writer. So it, I, and, I find I find that. And a very interesting answer at the present moment because it's, I think my love of writing was much in the same vein of like, oh, well, I can disappear and I can entertain someone or tell someone something interesting, but I don't have to have a direct relationship with them outside of my voice and the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to me now that actually writers, as, as well as every other human being seemingly, um, have to become a very public-facing brand, where actually the kind of thing that you're talking about, um, where the writer gets out of the way, in, in a kind of classic journalism sense, a writer recognizes that the writer is not the story. The story is the story. Um, but that exactly. seems to me not something that we do now, where writers have to have Twitter, you know, social media, they have to constantly be promoting themselves and their their writing as a product of themselves. So I wonder kind of what you think about that trend. But I know writers of whom that is not true. Peter Hessler, there is no better nonfiction writer writing in English than Peter Hessler. And uh, he, uh, and uh, Robert Wright, I'm, I'm, Forgive me, but I'm mentioning former students of mine. But, <laughs> That's okay. But but I know them well, and uh, and 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 so forth. And but but Bob Wright, his book books, the most recent is a big bestseller called "Why Buddhism Is True," mm. and uh, you you don't find him as an example of uh, you know somebody that has to be a brand, and and yet he he's he's done really well, and so does. Hessler. In other words, I don't think it, that's necessary. And there's a, there's another thing that goes with this that is terribly important. This is the reader, and the what is creative writing? Well, there's all, if there's creative writing, there's also creative reading. Mm. And if I mention, I can mention as a writer several things like corn shocks and pheasants or whatever. And, and, and that conjures a picture of, of autumn in Iowa or something like that. And 
and the, the reader is the reader is doing most of the work <laughs> and stay away from the reader let her read it let him read it Does that make sense? advice yeah Oh, well, in that sense, actually, then, um, let me ask you also, do you have advice that you would say you would give to young writers right now? As a longtime teacher. Yeah, well, this is a subject that, that concerns me a great deal because of the uh, swiftly moving digital age. Mm. And and what do you say to encourage young writers? I've still got the kids in college that have strong interest in my course and want to take it and everything. and. And when it comes around to, uh, I mean, incidentally, our criterion for for being in that course is not that you want to be a writer. I mean, I have a bunch of doctors and every other kind of thing. At any rate, the basic thing that I that I say is is that I don't think books are going to go away, and that that if if a person if a young writer forms the idea that that that, that she he is going to write a book someday, then with, with that as a kind of magnet out there, you don't have to do it this year, you don't have to do it next year, but, but you're going to do it sooner or later, and meanwhile you're going to do things that contribute to that, and whether that's in print journalism somewhere or whether it's in blogs. Uh, I mean, certainly the Internet is a place where any, but anybody can get practice writing, the best, the best of it would be where there was an editor, somebody to to respond, rather than just spill it out. But writing is what begets writing, and yeah, there's no way through. There's no way to it but through it. That exactly. One of the this is, and I think we we have to wrap up soon. But while I was reading your book, what really struck me about it, and part of it is is the uh, the quilt aspect of it is that it's it's very american it felt to me like a um sort of a almost a piece of americana in and of mm. itself and i wonder how well you know uh, one how you approach the american maybe as a as a subject it's perhaps inadvertent it's just a, a life but also what well potentially what what do you think of the current state of things you know, and, and Americana as we might see it today. Well, I hope Americana as, for whatever that exactly means, as it was 15 years ago and 30 and 45 and 60 years ago, I hope, I hope that this continues and that the, the entire uh, culture is not going down the tubes. I don't think it is. I think that uh, we live in really disturbing times. Politics is not my... Thing as a as a professional as a commentator, mm. but uh, but that's what I think, and I I uh, I find it hard to imagine that those things will not be so. But a certain I, I, I mean, like everybody else I, or that I know, I worry about it these days. Are there things um, to kind of ask you in closing that give you hope? That kind of um, I think that's something that especially in the new year and all of last year, actually. So I guess it's not really new. Um, that I've been looking for, like kind of documenting, like what are signs of hope um, that you find in kind of your everyday experience? Uh, well, in that my show everyday you it's not going down the tubes. In my everyday experience, or every year experience, or whatever, the number one thing that get, that gives me hope is is the students that come yeah. into my course. They're all the same. They're always the same age. 
for for 18 years or so i've had all i've been teaching an all sophomore course because i thought that was a good idea and i really look forward to uh, meeting these kids next month and uh their enthusiasm interest and uh, all the rest of it is 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 a great source of hope and and <laughs> you're hoping you're hoping for them uh, <laughs> yeah as well, you know, uh, uh, but but the, just the fact that they they're that they're so they're so able and they're so interested and and they're coming along and they're they're just as good this year as they were ten years ago in twenty thirty. Yeah, yeah. Go out to David Remnick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll pass we, it on. So we will end it there. Thank you, John McPhee, for joining us today. Well, thank you for asking me to. It's been a pleasure having you. We've been speaking to John McPhee, author most recently of the essay collection, The Patch. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much, John. Yes, indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.